Welcome to the preaching podcast of Life Point Church. We're so glad you've joined us here. If you're ever in the Baton Rouge area, please stop by. We'd love to meet you. For more information on our church or Pastor Donovan, please visit our website at golifepoint.com. This is chapter 21, part 3, chapter 22, part 1. And so let me say a prayer. We'll do some review and introduction and we'll push this train forward. We're almost done with the book of Revelation. And so, uh, hallelujah, praise the Lord for that. So let's say a prayer. Father, thank you so much for your faithfulness and your goodness, for your word. I pray that you would speak to our hearts tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, um, in review and introduction, let me read a little bit of the, the scripture Verse 5 of chapter 21, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these things are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So, let's jump in here. The one that was sitting on the throne, this is such an authoritative statement. This is from God himself. Behold, I make all things new. It's in the present tense. I am making everything new. It's the consummation of God's work of renewal and redemption, which having begun here and now in our present time, this is the fulfillment of all of that. Paul said this transformation is at work on on this side of eternity, 2 Corinthians Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. We looked at some of that. All things new. It's a brief glance at at the redemptive plan, God's eternal plan to uh, renew, to, to fix the fall. This is what this is all about. Now... Uh, when God finally completes this work of making all things new, all things will stay new. That's something to think about. It's not like he makes it new and then it wears out again. It's, uh, Dr. Henry Morris puts it like this, presumably this means not only that everything will be made new, but also that everything will stay new. The law of entropy will be repealed. Nothing will wear out or decay, and no one will age or atrophy anymore. It's really hard to wrap your mind around. It's other dimensional. You'll hear me say that. You've heard me say that throughout the book of Revelation, but you'll hear me say that tonight as well. John was probably so astounded by what he was seeing and hearing that he forgot to write, so he had to be told and reminded, hey, hey. Write these things down, right? Keep keep writing. Stop it. Stop gawking. Like, write. I need you to write these things down. And he says, it is done. It's the eternal purpose that, that was started 
uh, before the foundation of the world. It, it's done. It's, it's accomplished. Ephesians 1.10, here's another glimpse of this from uh, this side of eternity, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, or the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, uh, on earth in him. So, so that is done. It is done. Then he says, I'll give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. It's kind of interesting, right? This idea of drinking water. So water, drinking, thirst. And Guzik points out, drinking and thirst are common pictures of God's supply and man's need. Drinking is an action but it's an action of receiving. It's not a merit-based action like I'm going to work to try to get something. It's I'm receiving. I'm getting refreshed. I'm taking this in. It's like faith. It's doing something, but it's, it's, it's this idea of, of refreshing. Spurgeon says this, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He says, what does a thirsty man do to get rid of his thirst? He drinks. Perhaps there is no better representation of faith in all the Word of God than that. To drink is to receive, to take in the refreshing draught, and that is all. A man's face may be unwashed, but yet he can drink. He may be a very unworthy character, but yet a draught of water will remove his thirst. Drinking is such a remarkably easy thing. It is even more simple than eating. Interesting. He says that he who overcomes shall inherit all things. In these verses, so those who overcome, what does that mean? Well, it's it's really by faith. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. The next verse, that's from 1 John 5, the next verse says this, Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So it's the faith in the seed of the woman. We saw this in, genera- in, in generations. In Genesis... And we see this over here in Revelation. It always goes back to the, the finished work of Christ, the seed of the woman, crushed the head of the serpent, un, has undone the curse, faith in his finished work. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Folks, your faith is precious. Like precious faith, faith which is like more precious than gold. Your faith is a precious commodity. And it's significant here that it says the one who overcomes, and we overcome by faith. And then it goes on and says, here's who is not going to inherit this, the cowardly and unbelieving. What's, what's, is this timidity? So if you're shy, you're not going to heaven. Wouldn't that be terrible? Like, I'm afraid of public speaking. Well, you're going to hell. Like, you know what I mean? Like, wouldn't that be awful? You know, you, you, I'm, I'm afraid of flying. Any phobia you have, well, you're going to hell. You know, not the cow, cowardly can't go to heaven. Think of, we got all kind of fears. We did snakes, right? I'm not afraid of anything, you know. And then, then a spider drops a web right next to your face. And, Wah! you know, like, you freak out. You're afraid of spiders. You're going to hell? No, it, the cowardly here is referring to those who put self over Christ. When the heat was on, they chose to abandon their faith to become apostate and to put 
flesh first and self first. That's what it's speaking of. And listen, I've told you before, as precious as our Jesus is, as awesome as our Jesus is, as great as this salvation is, when you sign up, when you get on board, it's a fight. It is a warfare. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're mighty through God. Put on the whole armor that you can stand. It is a fight. And what's the enemy after? Your faith. Everything is to get you to quit trusting in Jesus. When the Son of Man comes back to the earth, Jesus said it, will he find faith on the earth? The enemy is trying. You remember the parable of the sower? The sower sows the word. It's the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. And Jesus said, and immediately the enemy comes in to steal the word that was sown. Why? Because we overcome by faith. This is the victory that overcomes. So we'll latch on to these promises. We'll say, I believe. I believe, Lord. I believe. I'm trusting you. But then the heat of the day, the heat of the culture. America used to be a Christian-oriented culture, which means a word-based culture. Are you with me? By the way, this thing is flashing around right here. You see this little thing? I bought this in Israel. This is, this is what the rabbis use. They have big ones. But it's a, it's a hand with a finger pointing. And they would read the Hebrew uh, in synagogue with these things. And I saw one at the Temple Institute in Jerusalem. And I bought it. And I was going through security the other day at the airport. And they pulled my backpack aside and made me stand aside. And, and I'm like, what did I leave in my backpack? They're going all through my backpack. They're going, they're pulling out everything. I mean, I'm, I'm glad we were early. I'm kind of, you know, like, oh, Lord. Because one time I got on a ship on a cruise, and I had a bullet on my backpack that was a keychain, but it was a 45, right? And uh, they said, we're going to have to take this. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. And so I was like, did I put another bullet in my backpack? And so they opened my Bible. And they pulled this out, and they said, this is some kind of bookmark. I said, yes, ma'am. Okay, you can go. And I was like, I guess this, you know, this could be a weapon, right? I never thought of it that way. But I don't know why I told you that because this thing was jumping around. I know what I was saying, though. I'm, 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 I have not lost my place. America used to be a Christian nation, a word-based nation, meaning our laws were grounded and founded on the Judeo-Christian ethic, meaning from the Scripture. We had an, a Judeo-Christian ethic in our laws, and we still do. But what are we doing? Left and right, we're trying to ditch that influence. And what has happened is, in the past, that influence has restrained flesh, and as a result, the work of the enemy, the devil, in our culture, in our, I love America, I love America, but it was, it was that restraint that came, you know, the enemy's putting pressure trying to steal that word, but by America having that word so deeply in it, and the churches and the faith of America standing strong from that word, 
it, it made America a better, a more godly, a holy nation. You understand what I'm saying? I understand it's individually, but but corporately, as a when when a, when a nation ex, uh, when a nation regards sin, it it, it becomes uh, an abomination. But when a nation that fears God is is lifted up from the Lord, and so we had that restraining force of the word in our laws, but we've been casting them off. The King James would use the word lascivious. We have become a lascivious nation because we don't have the restraint of the word. We're, we're trying to get rid of the restraint of the word. And it's a fight to keep the faith. And individually, as the culture shifts, and it's less cool to be a Christian, as a matter of fact, I mean, I mean, it's a Wednesday night. Can I just talk straight to you? So Drew Brees posts a video about bring your Bible to school and all hell breaks loose on Drew Brees. Why? Because he's endorsing word, but you can't do that in this culture. So we have choices to make. Will we bow to the golden image of culture or will, will we bow to the power of the word? That's the choices we have to make. And I'm telling you, what you do with that book and with your faith will determine will you be on the other side. If you're going to go to heaven, you've got to not be cowardly, but stand. And you don't have to go out and pick it and have a sign and 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 what or get on social media and become a social media warrior. You know, you don't have to do that. But you can just say, if everybody falls, Jesus help me. I'm gonna hold on. I'm not moving. I'm not shifting. I'm not compromising. You know what I'm saying? So when it speaks of the cowardly and the unbelieving, I believe that leads into the abominable. Uh, abominable. You know, there's a snowman that's abominable, right? But that's not what it's talking about. There are other scriptures that that refer to things that are abominations. Seven things are an abomination to the Lord. and it's, You can get deep into things that are an abomination. But I want to tell you primarily, I think in context here, Cowardly, unbelieving, abominable is the ones who in the heat of the battle deserted. They said, I'll take the easy way rather than the hard way. In, in essence, they are rejecting Jesus, abandoning the faith. Remember when Jesus was warning about the end times and warning about the pressures of this world, the love of many would wax cold because you know, because of the, the heat of the battle, you know, the, the, the heat and cold, it doesn't make sense, but because of the pressure and because of the wickedness abounding, the love of many would wax cold. And, and Jesus, in referring to these kinds of situations and times, said, remember Lot's wife. She turned back. I ain't turning back. With the help of God. In Jesus' name, I'm not turning back. 
And, and can I say this? To have that kind of tenacity, you've got to have a walk with God. Like you've got to have some roots in you. You've got to put some deep roots down. These live oaks out here, they don't, they're not standing after all these storms because they don't have roots. They're standing because they have deep roots. Those big redwoods in California, they're majestic, they're powerful, but their roots intertwine together. The body of Christ is supposed to be that way. We intertwine, our roots go deep, and when the storm comes, man, we, we withstand the storm. That's how you make it to the other side. He that endures to the end. So I just thought that was fascinating. Then verses 9 through 14, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So he says, I will show you the bride. And then he showed me a city, the holy Jerusalem. It makes you wonder if the new Jerusalem is a literal place. Some have suggested that it's really just an elaborate symbol for the church, the bride of Christ. But I believe the heavenly city is literal, even though... It seems to be called the bride here. It's it's the place where the bride gathers. I think it's a literal city. I talked about the city last time. And all God's people are there. And then we also have the dimensions, the literal dimensions of the city. So I don't think it's the dimensions of the bride per se. Wouldn't that be awkward? It's, it's the dimensions of the city. We'll see that in a few verses. Her light was like a most precious stone. So, so John was impressed by this, the light, the glory of the city, the, the glory of the city. She shared with the glory of God uh, in that, and, and it's expressed with this radiance, uh, a great and high wall. This is not for some kind of defensive purpose, but you know, there's no more enemies to overcome. The last enemy to be defeated is death, but this is giving definition to the city, and it shows that some are excluded. We talk about inclusion. Heaven is exclusive. And uh, I mean, that, it got qu really quiet in here. It's, I mean, but you got to overcome, right? You have to have your faith in the right place. And then it's this idea of 12 gates, names written on them. The names are the, the, the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Now, to me, that is amazing. Because have you ever read any of the stories of the sons of Jacob? They were scoundrels, y'all. They sold their brother Joseph into slavery. I mean, their names are on these gates. Reuben saved Joseph 
so he could sell him, like he was going to murder him, but saved him so he could sell him for money. And he's got a gate that says Reuben. Uh, let me give you a couple of more. Simeon and Levi did this chicanery on the poor men of Shechem, got them uh, at a weak moment, and murdered all of them. And Simeon and Levi have names on gates. Judah, one of the sons, had an affair with his daughter-in-law. And there's a gate, Judah. Now I want to tell you something. That's the grace of God. But I'll tell you something else. It's the power of God. It's the power of grace, which is all centered in the finished work of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. So here you can have these scoundrels who were putting their faith in the cross. How were they doing that? They were offering up sacrifices and these lambs and saying, Lord, one day you're going to send a son, the seed of the woman, that will undo all of this, and we're looking to you and trusting you, and in spite of all their mistakes and all their failures, which were drastic and cataloged for us in the Holy Writ, thank, aren't you thankful you didn't live in Bible times, or all your trash would be in the Holy Writ of the Word of God, and a thousand, two thousand, three thousand years later, somebody in a state called Louisiana, a town called Prairieville, would be preaching a message about all your shenanigans. That's what happened to them. And when you get to heaven, you're going to see a gate, Judah. But you know what? You're not going to say, ooh, you were a bad boy. You're going to say, isn't God good? Thank God for the blood. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. You did it for him. You did it for me. What a mighty God we serve. That's the idea. The, the, the 12 sons of Jacob, they have names on gates. I think it's also significant because these 12 boys treated the son of promise, Joseph, who is a type of Christ, with such disregard, betrayed him, you know, sold him. Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And, and these boys betrayed their brother for, I think it was 20 pieces of silver, something like that. Uh, such a type of Christ. Uh, and Joseph went on to save the world. Obviously, Jesus went on to save the world. I think that, that you see where Joseph tested them in the later part of their years to see if they really had changed, and then when he realized they had repented and turned in the right direction, he began to weep and he began to speak to them in Hebrew right there in the middle of Egypt and said, I'm your brother, I'm the brother. So it's such a perfect picture of Christ. It only makes sense that the 12 gates would have these boys' names on it and you have such a testimony of grace. Three gates on the east, three gates on the uh, north and uh, etc. That that could be a type of the encampment of the children of Israel as they came out of Egypt. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. the The foundations are an eternal testimony to to the apostles. And, and I always go back to this because this is profound. 
to me. It's just been a, a core truth in my life. I don't know if you know what you're talking about. You don't know if I know what I'm talking about. I know 12 men who knew what they were talking about when it came to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus because the Bible says so. It says that Jesus taught the 12 after his resurrection from the law and the Psalms and the prophets concerning how that Jesus had to suffer and die and be raised from the third day on the third day and that, that he opened their understanding that they might understand. Everything we know about Jesus, we know from these 12. So we have a bedrock, a foundation of heaven that has the names of the 12 apostles. Ephesians 2.20, Now therefore you are no longer strangers, foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also were built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So that idea of the foundation. Now let's look at the dimensions of this heavenly Jerusalem. Verse 15 going through 17. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city. It's you know what that gold reed is. He 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 had uh, he had a Stanley tape measure. That's what a gold reed is. Maybe a black max, but it was a really really big one. Had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed 12,000 furlongs. We don't use that every day, do we? Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits. We don't use that either. According to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. It's interesting. He kind of makes this little notation Incidentally, if you're wondering if angels are using the same measurement, yes. According to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. <clears throat> so the city's laid out square. The New Jerusalem's length, height, and width are equal. Now, you could take from this that it's a cube or a pyramid. That would be like ancient aliens, right? The pyramid would be perfect, but I, I think a cube is more likely what this is. And it's reminiscent of the holy place and the tabernacle, this cube, suggesting that the entire city is a holy place. And it is the holy Jerusalem. <clears throat> and he measures the city with this, this wreath. And here's the size and stuff we understand. It's huge. It's, it's 1,500 miles square, basically. This is the same distance from Maine to Florida. I, one time I preached a message and I threw a cube up like the size of this on the screen. I need to pull that up next time. I told you I was going to have a chart this time. I didn't have a chart. We'll have a chart before the end of this study, I promise you. But this is a massive uh, piece of architecture. Uh, Henry Morris guessing uh, that there will have been a hundred billion people in the human race through history at this time and the 20% of them will be saved and I don't know where he pulled that number from calculated that each person if that's the numbers would have a block with about 75 acres 
on each face of it to call their own. Now, that's pretty speculative, but it just the idea is this, there's plenty of room for everybody. There's plenty of room. Now, let's talk about its beauty. Verses 18 through 21. Are you with me? Isn't this exciting? The construction of its wall was, this is verse 18, of jasper. And the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper. The second, sapphire. The third, chalcedony. The fourth, emerald. The fifth, sardonyx. The sixth, sardius. The seventh, chrysolite. The eighth, beryl. The ninth, topaz. The tenth, chrysoprase. Chrysoprase. The eleventh, jacinth. And the twelfth, amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. Those are some gigantic oysters, right? I mean, just kind of looking at that one pearl. These are giant gates. This is a huge city. One pearl? And, I mean, you talk about a big oyster with a big irritant, right? And the street of the city was pure gold, <coughs> excuse me, like transparent glass. So here's this idea, the wall of jasper, uh, pure gold, all these precious stones. The problem with these stones is throughout the centuries, the, the true color of the stones has been lost. Now, you can dig, and people have. You can find reams of information if you start Googling this. But I don't think anybody really knows what they're talking about. Because John here is going from language to language as well, trying to get this in Greek. He spoke Greek and Aramaic. He was familiar with Hebrew. And so he's, he, this, this, the stones had come to mean different things. You know, they had shifted. And so to try all these years later to figure out exactly which these, what these stones are, I think is pertinent impossible, as my grandmother used to say. And then you can try to say that this is, you could try to match all these gemstones on the, the breastplate that the priest would wear, the ephod. But uh, I, I think you're going to be hard-pressed to make that happen. Uh, I, I, I think the idea is beyond that. There is splendor that uh, is beyond comprehension. Beauty that is beyond comprehension. The idea is this. This city has an architect whose builder and maker is God. It should blow our minds. This is not like watching HGTV. This is not like going and hiring some super architect, I want to build a really fancy house. Or some city, we're going to do a master plan city, Columbia, Maryland, where Trey uh, Neeland used to live, was a master plan city. I don't care who you hire down here. It's nothing compared to this, whose builder and maker, the architect, is God himself. It's other dimensional. Is bigger than we can imagine, above and beyond, right? Stand with me right now. This will help me. Verses 22 through 24. I'm, I'm trucking, man. I'm trying to get to chapter 22. Verses 22 through 24. But I saw no temple in it. For, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. 
The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Now, there's so much packed in these these couple of verses here that we'll get onto it next time, but he said, I saw no temple. In the ancient world, for you to see a city that had no temple was like in the modern world seeing a city that has no bank, no schools. To, to say there's no temple was mind-boggling. I saw no temple in it, no shopping mall, you know, no anthropology, no Walmart. How about that? Mind-boggling. No temple? He says, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. This is fascinating. The temple was not removed but expanded. In the Old Testament, the temple was, you know, a building. Prior to that, it was a tent. Then it was a building. And then the Bible says that we are the temple of the living God in the New Testament. But over there, it's even bigger than that. It's God and the Lamb that's the temple. So it's this amazing place where the Lamb is the light. There's an old hymn that says it. In that city where the Lamb is the light. Light is speaks of so many things in the Bible. Joy, glory, beauty, knowledge. I'm just saying... In heaven, it's going to be beauty beyond compare. It's going to be holy beyond imagination. It's going to be stunning architecturally. It's just a phenomenal place, this city where the Lamb is the light. Verses 25, I'm done, but listen to this. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there, and there shall they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now that is the last verse. I'll explain it next time. But I want you to understand that we're going to a place where the Lamb of God, the, the work of Christ that we praise Him for down here, like we will fully comprehend. Like we see in part right now, but then we will, we will fully comprehend. We will know as we are known. And God knows everything about us. We'll know everything about Him. We'll know, we'll see, and forever we'll be in the presence of the Lord. So I'm trying to paint this picture. To me, streets of gold, whatever. I mean, it's asphalt, right, in heaven. So it's not like you're going to be scraped. Oh, I got gold. I'm going to make a Rolex, you know, or whatever. It's not, it's not about gold and all this stuff. It's the radiance, the glory of God. When you are in the presence of God, and you know that you're clean, 
It feels so right. You're connected with the creator. It's powerful. There's no, not a care in the world, not a worry in the world. You're, you're lost in the sweet presence of God. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You're lost in the sweet presence of the Holy Ghost. You're, you're in the presence of God. It just feels so right. I wish I could stay here. I just wish I, that's why Peter said that, you know, I wish I could be, build three temples. Let's just stay here right now, Lord. And just, I want to be lost in that. To me, that's what heaven is. You are lost in it. You're saved to be lost in the presence of God forever and ever. So it's this, this communion, this beautiful place. It's this intimate relationship, like the, the, a bride adorned for her husband, the bridegroom. Those pictures are just, just imagery. It's other dimensional, but it's painting a place of what humankind has searched for, nirvana, all these ideas of, of, of an elevated self. This is it. But it's not because of us. It's because of him. It's all because of what Jesus has done for us. Let's close our eyes right now. Father, I thank you for a cross that uh, the Son of the living God hung on. And, Lord, you said, no man takes my life, I lay it down. But if I lay it down, I have the power to raise it up. And God, we know that three days later, that tomb was emptied and you rose alive forevermore. And God, we see a fulfillment here in the book of Revelation that's mind-boggling. But God, our faith is rooted. I don't have to understand all that. My faith is rooted in what you did. And God, you're going to get your very best to me over there. Everything you've promised will come to pass. And God, we just want to hang on to our faith. Every fear that would try to pressure us out of releasing our faith, we rebuke it in Jesus' name and we hold on to our faith. Devil, you're a liar and a thief. And with all the lies that you come against us with to get us to abandon our faith, we rebuke you in Jesus' name. We're going to hold on to our faith. Thank you very much. And, and, and when the Son of Man comes back, he will find faith in, in this heart. By the grace of God, he'll find faith in this heart. Can you make a commitment like that to him right now in your own personal way? In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were blessed. For more information on our church, Pastor Donovan, or service times, please visit our website at golifepoint.com.